Fools, Anne Henry here for The Motley Fool. Industry Focus is off today, so we're bringing you an interview from Patrick O'Shaughnessy about his new book, Millennial Money, How Young Investors Can Build a Fortune, with The Fool's own Morgan Housel. We'll be back with healthcare tomorrow. Cool on. Hi, I'm Morgan Housel. With me today is my friend Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Patrick, thanks for being here. Hey, Morgan. How are you? Good, thanks. You have a new book out. Indeed. It's a fantastic read about investing for young people, for the younger generation. What can you tell me about the book? Where did you get the idea and what's it about? So I got the idea, honestly, just from simple conversations with friends, talking about markets, talking about what they were doing, what they were thinking about, and found it alarming that almost all of them were very, very conservative in their investing choices. Uh, so the ones that were saving, not all of them were saving yet, which of course they should be, but the ones that were saving were largely in cash because they were scared about what might happen in the stock market over the next few years. And I started thinking, wow, this, this is terrible framing. We're 20, 30 years old. We should be thinking about four decades, not the next two years. Maybe this is a problem. Soon thereafter, a number of bank-led surveys were finding that this was true across my young generation. Um, so that was sort of the initial impetus to write the book, was to try to reach and correct this weird misorientation uh, for young investors and help them get off on the right foot. And there are two things that I hear from young investors about why they're not investing. Yeah. Number one is that pretty much all they've known in the market, they started paying attention to the market maybe in the late 90s or yep. early 2000s. All they know is crash to crash. Yep. They know 1999 crash and they know 2008 crash and that's their frame of reference. And that's, it gives them this view that the market is rigged or the odds are stacked against them. Yep. How do you get people who view the market in that way yeah. excited about long-term investing? So I actually have an entire chapter devoted to this question, which is called Risk Redefined, which is trying to tie this idea of risk and the scariness of the stock market to our time horizon. Because everyone thinks of risk as this fixed, absolute concept. You know, how much does something bounce around? The more, the riskier, right? Well, that's not true. Risk can only be defined relative to your time horizon. So if you're a 40-year investor, what's risky to you is very different than if you're investing for the next five years. Um, so I think it's all about framing, understanding how markets work historically, understanding that these two terrible stock markets that we've seen are actually kind of typical. We, we see big crashes like this every once in a while. But even through those times, the stock market over 30, 40-year periods has been probably the safest place for your money over the long term. So just trying to help people understand the history is a big part of it. Do you think that's going to be more difficult for the younger generation? Because we're the generation that wants things right now. Yeah. We don't want to watch program TV. We want Netflix. Yeah. We don't want to wait, wait two seconds for you know, we, we think when our, the Wi-Fi goes out, the world's coming to an end. Right. How do you get people to think in 40-year time horizons when they can't think about what's going to happen 10 minutes from now? Yeah, it's a huge problem, and there's an interesting study I talk about in the book that if you show people news on their portfolio, they actually do much worse than if you show them nothing. Um, so we have this urge to just constantly be doing something. We're kind of the instant gratification generation, as, as you point out. I think, again, it's all about education, about setting up your investing in a very automatic, behind-the-scenes fashion. So not really meddling in your portfolio, not trading very often at all, if, if at all, just making very simple, regular contributions over the course of your career to simple, uh, you know, easy-to-understand, value-based, or just global index funds. I think that that's, what, that's, that's all it takes. It's just making it automatic and forgetting about it, sort of the set-it-and-forget-it approach. Uh, if you can commit to that early on, then I think you'll, you'll be set up well. And then there's this other point with young investors that 
you know, this is something you and I were talking about earlier. They have a negative savings rate on yeah. average. Yeah. So what do you say to the person who reads this book and says, that's great, I get it, it makes sense, but Patrick, I have yeah. $200 in the bank and a bunch of student loans, what do I do now? Yeah, so part of the challenge here is that this will no doubt for young people come with some personal austerity. Um, we're, we're in New York right now, and I've, I've heard this complaint a lot of times, and often it's over a 10 or $12 beer or something like that. <laughs> um, so maybe, maybe start there. Um, but I think that there are always ways uh, that you can start even in very small amounts. I like to think in percentage terms rather than raw dollar amounts. Just 5% of your income to start. You know, the savings rate is negative 2%, meaning right. we're spending more than, uh, than we earn. If you could just make it 5%, even in very, very small amounts, those numbers can grow to quite significant sums over 30 or 40 years. Um, so it may be difficult, no doubt for many it will be difficult, but just small amounts, if you can commit to just a tiny percent of your income, it's just a great way to start. And then if, if, if you're a young person that goes out there and wants to start investing, if you Google how do I invest, you're going to get bombarded by day trading, yeah. penny stocks. You're going right. to be overwhelmed, and that's probably going to reinforce your view that the market maybe is kind of a rigged scam rigged, against right. you. How do you recommend what do you recommend a young person who's just getting into this? How should they start investing? So my recommendations are kind of, it's kind of two-tiered. The first tier would be that for the vast majority of people, this is what Warren Buffett refers to as the know-nothing investor, people that want to invest but really don't know the ins and outs of the market. I think that the simplest and lowest cost approach is the best way to go. So simple global ETFs, mutual funds run by companies like Vanguard uh, as, as the biggest name in the business, where you pay a very tiny amount for them to give you exposure to 50 countries around the world in a very low cost approach. All that you're doing there is buying a slice of global business. You're not trying to pick stocks and win. That's very hard for individuals to do. I recommend they don't do it. Uh, you're just getting access to global business. So that's tier one. Tier two for the one that would be a little more interested in markets and, and be willing to do a little bit of extra work and, and thinks that excess returns over the market are possible would be to build sort of a value-based, rules-based approach, which sort of takes the best of index investing, which is just buy stocks, do it the same way consistently through time, but does it for reasons other than just their size. So an index fund buys the mo owns the most of Apple uh, and IBM and GE and companies like that because they're bigger, right? That's the qualification. I would recommend that owning stocks because they're cheaper, because the companies are higher quality, because the market's just begun to notice them. Reasons like that can lead to superior returns over time. But again, that would be the second tier of my recommendation. This is something you and I were talking about earlier. The, yeah. the ETF and the mutual fund business is changing very rapidly. Quickly. There's a lot of money moving out of so-called active mutual funds, moving yes. into passive ETFs. Yep. What do you think about that trend? Is it a healthy trend, and where does it go from here? Yeah, it's a fascinating one. In, in, early, in the early 1990s, index funds had a market share of just about 2 or 3%, a tiny fraction of if money. If you want to invest, you, you can pick stocks or you had a mutual fund. Exactly. Much and, and so it was, it was a small blip in the investing radar just in the early 1990s. Today, it's up over a third uh, in the United States and gaining market share across the world. I think, in general, it is a positive trend. Uh, because it eliminates a lot of the problems with people out there trying to pick stocks, you know, walking into a store and they like the product, so they go buy the stock, or they use Uber and it's great, so when that stock comes out, when that IPOs, I'm going to buy some of that. That is a terrible, terrible way to invest. So it eliminates those problems for most investors. So I think on, on whole, it's good because it gives ac investors access to markets at much lower costs in a more tax-efficient manner. One of the biggest topics that you and I see in the, in the 
circles that we travel in. Mm -hmm. We've had this massive bull market run since 2009. Yeah. But you can, you can stretch that back a little farther and say since 2007, stocks have barely kept up with inflation. Yeah. What do you view about just the broad valuation of the market right now? Do you think we've come way too far too fast, or do you not even think about those topics? Um, we try not to think too much about them at the market level. As investors, we're much more about individual companies, trying to find companies that make sense right now. I can comment broadly speaking on how cheap or expensive markets are. I think that the U.S. is in kind of the upper range. It's not crazy over expensive like it was, say, in 2000 uh, or even in 1929, some of the really bad market peaks. Uh, but it has gotten on the expensive side. That doesn't mean that returns are going to be bad going forward. Mm -hmm. Valuation is a terrible timing tool. People right. shouldn't use it to time the market uh, because it, it, there's just such a wide range of possibilities. You have investors like John Hussman. Sure. Who, he's a very smart guy. You yeah. can tell when you PhD. read his stuff, he needs a PhD, he knows what he's talking about. But his fund performance has been the most dismal you could ever imagine. Yeah. I think he's literally the worst mutual fund manager of the last decade. Because he takes valuation and I think kind of turns it into a timing tool yeah. by trying to time the market with derivatives and it's, it's been disastrous. It's very hard to do. Uh, it's a, I think valuation is a great strategic tool. So for example, the, I've mentioned the U.S. has gotten a little bit more expensive. Um, well, Europe as a, as a general category or, or really ex-U.S., so stocks outside the U.S. are cheaper on some of these measures that, that Hussman uses that a lot of people uh, think are useful tools for investing. And they are useful in a strategic sense, but when you're trying to allocate in time, according to things like uh, uh, Bob Schiller's P.E. ratio is one that's very popular these days. It just, there's such a wide range of outcomes that I recommend against using that too strictly in your portfolio. Uh, just build a global portfolio and it's not overly expensive today. Something else that we've seen in the last month or two is sort of the unwind of gold that's been happening yeah. for the last couple years. Yeah. What do you think about the gold? I mean, you're a stock investor, but yeah. this is... These are topics that we see and we write about a lot. What do you think of that market right now? So gold is very difficult to analyze because unlike stocks where you have a price and an earnings, and with gold all you have is a price. Um, and you've got, you can compare it to stocks as an example, all the gold in the world compared to the stock market's value and, and look at something like that. But it is very difficult to analyze what's going to happen with gold because we don't know what's going on. There's nothing underneath it. It's just basically a trust-based price. Um, so I don't know what's going to happen with gold. I don't own any. Um, I don't necessarily recommend people own any. Uh, if you're really concerned about the end of the world, maybe go buy a go bag instead of, uh, instead of a brick of gold. There's a, there's a, weird, uh, a weird disposition among gold investors, too, yeah. that someone can be, uh, people who are calling for hyperinflation and whatnot, that you can be that wrong for six years without it affecting yeah. your view of the world. And there's a difference, I think, between being, uh, being consistent and sticking with your views and just being stubborn well past the time of being proven wrong. Yeah, I think uh, successful adept, uh, investing needs to be very adaptive. <laughs> you need to be able to admit when you're wrong, uh, to move on. And sometimes at the extremes, there are these very dogmatic investors uh, who just stick with it regardless of the evidence against. Um, not to say gold won't have a good run in the next 20 or 30 years, but we just don't know and there's not really any reasonable thing we can point to to make that kind of prediction. So without any in interesting evidence or, or ability to look forward, um, I, I can't recommend for or against really. What do you think the, about the rise of robo-advisors, companies yeah. like Betterment and Wealthfront, that are targeting, uh, uh, to a large degree, the investors that you write for, young investors that maybe yep. have a little bit of money, and now because of technology, they can be provided with pretty good service and pretty yeah. good advice. What do you think of that industry? I think it's great for a lot of reasons. The first and foremost is that it's automated. And so I mentioned earlier that automating your investing is really one of the keys to success. And I think the fact that all you have to do is the initial setup with these companies and then they manage a lot of the process for you. You're not trying to pick stocks. 
is great. And I think companies like Wealthfront, Betterment, uh, to name a few, I think you know, big names like Charles Schwab are getting into this business. I think we'll see lower and lower fees, so we're going to be charged less and less as investors for great services. Um, so I, I support them. I'm curious to see kind of who will rise to the top. I've been following it very closely. Uh, but I think on a whole, it's good for our generation to have these automated solutions. As, as an industry, I look at it is, you know, it seems like a lot of them are offering more or less the same product. So yeah. fee-wise, it's a race to zero, which is great if you're a customer. That's great for everyone out there. Yeah. As a business, though, I just don't know how, how it's going to pan out in the end. Well, they'll have to evolve, right? So you've already seen services offered, like for Wealthfront, for example, they offer single stock diversification. So for someone that works at Twitter or at Facebook, it's a specialized service just for them. Mm -hmm. They're going to continue to need to add services like that to keep up yeah. because it will be a race to bottom to manage the portfolios because... You see, Schwab is literally at zero. They're now. literally charging zero, yeah. um, which is <laughs> hard to go much lower. Maybe, <laughs> right. maybe we'll start paying people to use our services. Right. Uh, who knows? But I think it will be specialized services, you know, good marketing, very high touch, uh, very sleek interfaces and easy to work with, and some of them will survive and do very well. What do you think about dividends right now? That's something that so many people out there are interested because yeah. of what interest rates have done over the last five years. But then there's another side of that in that you see like utility companies that mm -hmm. offer historically high yields, just money plowing into those. Yeah. And those companies used to be uh, this industry that lagged the market in terms of valuation, and now yeah. it's above the market. Do you see that as overinflated, something that could unwind? I think so, especially in the U.S. I think this hunt for yield over the last five years has been one of the defining characteristics of the market, and it's pushed these traditionally cheap, you know, 50% discount type stocks like utilities, consumer staples, up to market level or even at premium valuations to the market as people hunt for yield. We think that if you're looking for yield in the U.S., looking at dividends is just looking at a small piece of the pie, that you actually want to look at total yield, which would include share repurchases, share buybacks, mm -hmm. because U.S. corporations have just preferred to do that in the last 15 years or so. Um, so yield investing is great, but it should be what we call shareholder yield investing rather than just dividend yield investing because many of those stocks have gotten quite expensive. Not just looking in the U.S. too, but you mentioned earlier a lot of cheaper stocks in Europe and other yeah. places overseas. Is that a better place if you're looking for yield these days? For yield, certainly. Um, when you look at valuations of big European, say, energy stocks, telecommunication stocks today, um, some other categories around the globe in Asia Pacific, they're much, much cheaper than similar high-yielding stocks here in the U.S., I think we have this portfolio patriotism or home bias where we just prefer to own companies that we know, whose products we use, et cetera. Um, we do that at the expense of a lot of key opportunities abroad. So there's tons of great companies in Europe that pay very healthy dividends that are trading at much larger discounts. Um, so we would urge investors looking specifically for dividend yield alone because they want that income stream to look abroad. The most important question I'm going to ask you today, yeah. uh, are Alma Matters, USC, Notre Dame, November yeah. 29th, are you ready just to admit that USC has a better football program? Is that something you're willing to do on camera today? Well, absolutely not. I don't think there's any evidence that you could throw at me to support that claim. This year, um, this, this, you're right this year. Yeah, a lot of sanctions for USC. Uh, I'm not saying Notre Dame doesn't have its fair share of problems, <laughs> but at least we're moving in the right direction, I think. It remains to be seen what happens with your coaching. Uh, it's been kind of a, a, a carousel lately, so... I wish you the best, though. Some, some, there, there's sometimes I just block it out. I just pretend I yeah. don't read the news. Yeah, a, a guy I work with had a great point, which was that we cannot let 18 and 19-year-old kids determine our well-being. <laughs> You've got to remember that these players are just young college They're kids. kids. Right. Uh, and, you know, we lost a, a bad game to Arizona State this past weekend, and, and that ruined my night. You know, and I, I can't let that happen because you have to remember, it's just young kids playing a game. <laughs> Hard to do that sometimes. That's right. Patrick, thanks very much. Thanks, Maury.